On today's episode of the Essential Coaching Skills Podcast, I talk once again to my good friend Bruce Teal. Bruce is a therapist. He's a licensed social worker in Rochester, New York, who also uses NLP regularly in his practice. And I talk to him about why he considers that to be an essential therapy skill. Stay tuned. You are listening to the Essential Coaching Skills Podcast, a show devoted to uncovering the systems and the secrets that set the best apart, where you learn how to take your coaching clients to the next level, while you grow the coaching practice of your dreams. So sit back and relax, or sit up and get excited. Either way, you might want to pay attention. This could be important. Bruce, it's good to see you again. How are things up there in Rochester? Well, they are just lovely, Doug. How are things down there in whatever you don't even place you are? I don't even know the name of your town. I am. <laughs> I'm somewhere further south than you in the still in the quote-unquote upstate New York area, uh, according to everyone who lives in New York City. Anyway, um, it could be Yonkers for all anybody else knows. I had a friend once when I was living in Vermont said, oh, that's upstate someplace, isn't it? It's like, no, it's not. It's a different state. <laughs> it's a little concerning, really. <laughs> well, I went to college at Bard College. Oh, yeah. That's we right. We had a lot of people from New York there, and this one girl, I remember, uh, we had a truly co-ed dorm there. Although they were not mixed gender rooms, every you never know who was in what room. The bathrooms were co-ed. It was very progressive. So the girl in the room next door to me grew up in Manhattan. And uh, I remember the first night we went, a bunch of us went to a bar down the street and she said, oh my God, look at the stars. It's like a planetarium. <laughs> And then I was driving to New York with her one time. We won't say why. And uh, I'm heading south and I get down there. I'm like, okay, how do we get in? And she goes, I don't know. I've never been out before. She had never left Manhattan for her whole existence until she left for college. Oh, how interesting. Yeah, I was I was playing in a, a band, one of my first bands in New York City. Um, don't, I think it was Ultraviolence. Um, we we had different guitar players and stuff every week. There was a very volatile time, um, so I think the band was still by the same name, Ultraviolence, but it was a different band lineup. And there's this guy who was a really good guitarist from Brooklyn. Uh, I don't remember his name, but um, I was trying to describe where I was from, you know, up from Buffalo. And he said, "Where's that? Is that upstate someplace?" I said, "Yeah, it's near Niagara Falls. Have you ever been ever been to Niagara Falls?" And he said, "No, I never been out of New York." He said, you've never been out in New York City? He said, well, I've been to Jersey a couple times, you know. You know. <laughs> totally well, different world. Different world, yeah. So seeing stars up here is pretty different, I'll tell you, oh, yeah. from, from Brooklyn, that's for sure. Anyway, um, enough about that. <laughs> Bruce Teal, I have asked you here to discuss other than the weather and, and um, the glory days of college, et cetera. But um, I was just listening to Bruce Springsteen do glory days. Ah, um, yeah, so that's the other Bruce. The other version. The other Bruce. And um, anyway, the reason I wanted to talk to you again, uh, you, you were so good the first time around on the podcast a few months ago. 
few episodes ago, is um, you are one of the few people that I know who is, quote unquote, a legit therapist. I mean, you do you're, you're board licensed, certified type person who does ongoing therapies with people who also do does NLP. So you do you mix NLP in with, you know, what people would just think of as, you know, talk therapy. Right. Is that fair? That to is very accurate. I am a New York State licensed clinical social worker. So I have my master's in social work. I have a private practice where I do mental health counseling. And NLP is very much integrated into my practice. Excellent. So you are the perfect person to discuss this with. Because if you look up NLP in Wikipedia or something, it'll tell you that it's a pseudoscience and it's all this stuff and it's got all this bad press about various things. And people will say, oh, if you're doing NLP, you shouldn't, you know, work with, you know, people who really need help, you know, send send them out to a legitimate therapist or something. But here you are, a legitimate therapist who's right. um, using the same tools of NLP in your therapy practice, how how do you do that, and 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 can you? Is it legal to be doing these things? And if it's not, we'll just you know we'll stop the podcast now. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, is it legal? Uh, never mind that. Yes. Well, no, it is legal. It's um, there's a whole thing in, in psychotherapy called evidence based practice, okay. which has been distorted since it was originally introduced as an idea. So evidence-based practice and its origins is actually very similar to what was different about NLP when I first started looking into it. In that evidence-based practice means that when you're working with a client, you use techniques that demonstrate their improvement in some evidentiary way. So it might be a pencil and paper test, their report, but basically when you work with a client, you're monitoring their progress and you're adjusting your method of working in such a way that they continue to make progress. So it was meant not... uh, it's not about a technique specifically, it's about the process of doing treatment. It then got kind of bastardized into this thing where a treatment modality had to have scientific evidence in order to be something that a therapist should use. And in particular, that it had to have evidence that it worked on a particular diagnosis somebody was suffering from a diagnosis. So if you show up in my office, you meet criteria for a major depressive disorder, then I should be using techniques that have been shown in, you know, scientific studies that work with depression. Well, the problem is with that idea is there are no, with all the studies that have done, when you look at really broad studies, what they call meta-analysis, and you take out the scientist's bias, what you're ending end up with is basically 
all therapies work equally well and you can't causally connect one therapy helping with one diagnosis. Hmm. So this whole thing they're looking for does not seem to exist. Wow. So people say, if you go on the internet and you look up CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, Mm -hmm. and depression, you can find article after article, and by article, I mean an internet article, not a journal article, that'll say CBT has been demonstrated to be the best treatment for depression or something like that. Mm -hmm. Uh, But that's not true. Uh, Basically, what research finds time after time after time is that the only predictor of success in therapy is the relationship between the therapist and the client. Or, slightly different, but pretty much the same thing, if you are having success with a particular therapist, meaning you're going, you're feeling better or your behavior is improving within the beginning of treatment, say four to six sessions, then the likelihood that you'll continue to get to your goal is very, very high. Mm-hmm. But if you're not making any progress, the likelihood you'll make it to your goal, no matter how long you see that therapist is very, very limited. Hmm. So what I tell virtually every client I have when I start is that second half, which is what we're looking for in the beginning is, are you improving in the direction you want to go? And as long as you are, fine, we're in good shape. We'll get where we want to go. If not, then the first thing we want to do is try some different ways of doing treatment. And if you're still not getting better, then the best thing I can do for that person is refer them to somebody else. Right. Because in essence, all therapists help some clients. No therapists help all clients that come to see them. Wow, that's so really the quicker you can sort that out, the better for everybody. So therefore, um, the NLP skill of rapport skills obviously is very high on the list of important skills to have. Speaking yeah. of essential coaching skills, um, being able to develop that rapport and have a good relationship with your client obviously is true. But it, it goes deeper than that, of course, that, you know, a relationship is not about a technique of rapport skills. It's it's about, you know, a deepening appreciation of of the relationship there. It's curious, though. I, I had a um, discussion earlier today with a person who said that we were t- talking about her her response to um, EMDR treatments mm-hmm. because her son had committed suicide a few years ago. And she was um, very upset by that, of course, obviously traumatized by it. And EMDR worked really, really well for her. And that the therapist that she'd gone to for EMDR was a person that she'd known, but she didn't really like her that much. Didn't really feel connected to her at all. Yet, the therapy went very, very well. And not only did this therapist then work with her, but worked with her husband, worked with her other son, worked with a you know sister, you know, basically this person said that this therapist had helped her whole family over time. So I'm curious about that because, you know, if it's about the relationship, again, it doesn't necessarily mean I like 
the person like a friend that I want to hang out and have a beer with them or something. But there's a sense of rapport. In other words, that there, there's a trust that I know that you are a competent therapist with my best interest in mind, a fiduciary responsibility, if you will, for my best interest. Um, and that you're good at your job. You know what you're doing. You can help me get from point A to point C or whatever. Exactly. Yeah. Relationship doesn't mean you like somebody. In fact, I don't usually talk up front with a client about the relationship idea because that muddies the water, but I talk sure. about the results idea. And I, I will often add to that. It doesn't really matter if you like me. What matters is, are you getting the results I want? Or excuse me, what that they want. They want, yeah, yeah, yeah. So relationship is a pretty confusing construct anyway. There's a lot to it. I think the other piece to keep in mind whenever you're dealing with science is that science is great at giving you information about groups of people mm -hmm. and terrible at giving you any information about an individual. Hmm. So think of it this way. If you and I are sitting in my office and we make a, a bet on how tall the next male we'll say is that comes through my door. Okay. And we have no other information. Well, if either one of us happens to know the average height of an American male or, you know, a male in New York state or whatever mm -hmm. population, say it's five, nine, just to pick a number. Okay. So if that's all we knew, that would be our best guess, right? Sure. But the odds that that next person through the door is five, nine is actually pretty small. Yeah, makes sense. Because the statistic is describing groups and science is all about statistics. Is there a better way to have predicted the height of the next individual through the door? Uh, not that I know of. I think the best way, what we do instead is in treatment is when the guy comes through, we measure him. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And we treat him as an individual instead of a group. Nice. So, you know, and there, there's a lot of tricky bits of business when it comes to how mental health stuff is organized anyway. So another reason that the research gets very cumbersome is mental health diagnoses. It's easy to forget that don't tell anybody, but we just made them up. They're not a real thing, right? What? What? You, uh, what? I'm not saying people don't get depressed, but there is no such thing as a depression per se. What we do is there's a bunch of people that had similar behaviors, so we decided to call it depression just to make our life simpler. Mm. But the, one of the main differences between mental health treatment and and traditional medical treatment is, in my opinion, lots of mental health professionals would disagree. But so with, if you go to your doctor, your primary care doctor or a psychiatrist, somebody who's truly a medical person, mm -hmm. right, and it's determined that you have a depression, well, that diagnosis then says, okay, so if you're depressed, that means this is the treatment plan. Mm -hmm. So the treatment plan is, I'll write you a prescription for medication. 
Now they may refer you out to therapy, but that's a, that's kind of a side issue. So they'll say, Hey, here's your antidepressant. If it doesn't work, we'll try another one, but that's their treatment plan. Right. Yeah. Well, somebody comes to see, say you come to see me and we determine that you're depressed. Really all that does is tell me how to build the insurance company. It doesn't really tell me how to treat. You. Right. Because what I think is incredibly helpful about NLP is that it gives you kind of an overlay for people's behavior so that you can, you, you look at it differently than, than the doctor does. Because I could see 10 people this week that are depressed and each one of them does it completely differently. Right. Right. One person runs a slideshow of every failure they believe they've had in their life. Somebody else has a really miserable version of their mother's voice off to the side. Somebody else, you know, thinks about their true love and how they didn't get them by seeing an image of her, you know. So there's a, a literally thousands of ways to get yourself to be depressed. Right. And what I think is very helpful about the NLP tool set is it gives you a way to figure out what the underlying process is so that you can then modify that process. Quick note of clarity. Um, when you're talking about somebody who's running a slideshow, you're talking about a, inside their mind. They're running yes. pictures after pictures. They're making these pictures in their mind of every failure they've had. Exactly. It would be a really high-tech method of being depressed okay. to actually have a slideshow. Oh, great when I got up. Unfortunately, I had time to do my uh, PowerPoint <laughs> on failure. PowerPoint, exactly. Okay. Honey, where's that slide deck on depression? I'm feeling too happy right now. Um, yeah, let's plug it in. So, yeah, so the crazy thing is that's not that far from how it works for some I know, people. it's right. It's true. It's true. You know, it's just it's all in their head. They do it all without the external equipment. So that is really, really cool. And um, what I love about that is not only... Is it consistent with, of course, <laughs> the way I work? <laughs> We're both so smart the way we <laughs> But um, I was just just yesterday um, talking with somebody about what the Ericksonian Foundation has put together as the six core competencies yeah. of, of Ericksonian hypnosis. And, um, you know, this is Ericksonian Foundation. You know, these are all the NLP, I mean, sorry, the PhD guys. These are all the doctor this and doctor that who are who are saying well i can talk about this but i can't teach it to you unless you are well, you know what the impetus was behind that right no what oh okay so behind which exactly behind developing those competencies and oh that. yes i think i do but go ahead and tell us i think yeah but they want to be evidence-based hmm. they want to be able to say ericksonian therapy or however you know what however they say it has this evidence base and to create an evidence base, you have to have basically kind of a model of what it is you do. And then you can try to test it and see if it works. That's, that's cool. I didn't actually think of that. That's cool. And uh, the, the main person I believe that really got that rolling with them was Scott Miller. Scott Miller was part of it. Yeah, absolutely. And he worked with uh, uh, David, Daniel short, um, yeah. make it happen. Sure. And of course, with the yeah. blessing of Jeffrey Zag. Um, there's a fascinating, by the way, six-part video series. I don't know if you've seen it. On, on... I've seen uh, a couple of them. I haven't gotten to all of them yet. Yeah, this is really good. I try but, to uh, never finish anything if I can. 
Um, the the one of them is called um, one of the core competencies is being strategic. Um, mm. the, one of the things that the, the the idea that they used to create these core competencies is they were asking the question what what separates Ericksonian hypnosis from other forms of hypnosis that we can say okay this person's doing hypnosis but are they doing Ericksonian hypnosis? And, well, and some, I think it's even beyond hypnosis. I think it's Ericksonian psychotherapy. Yeah, therapy. Yeah, exactly. A broader brush, brush even than that. Quite right. Quite right. Yes. Because obviously Erickson didn't always do hypnosis per se when he was telling people to go climb Squaw Peak. It wasn't exactly hypnosis per se. But the idea of being strategic is one of the uh, core competencies that they came up with that said, you know, if a person isn't being strategic, then we can say it's not Ericksonian hypnosis or some of the other core competencies. If we see the person isn't using utilization, then we can say it's not Ericksonian hypnosis or Ericksonian therapy. So the idea of being strategic is, you know, exactly what we do in NLP. We, we, we don't just have the person come in and talk and talk and talk about the problem. Right. We say, okay, where are you and where do you want to get to? And clearly, if they could get there by themselves, they wouldn't be in your office, right? right. So the, the, the issue is that gap between where they are and where they want to get to. So being strategic in this Ericksonian core competency way of thinking about it is to have a plan to get from point A to point C, you know, bridge that gap, the B bridge to get to, to the place where you want to get to. That's what being strategic is. And that is NLP. That's what NLP has always been about. The first thing you ask a person is, well, what's your outcome? Where do you want to get to? And then it's always about using so, such and such a procedure or whatever in order to get them to that place. Is, is that how you work? Is that true with what you said? Absolutely. Saying? Although I would say, like most therapists, I'm pretty eclectic. I've been trained in lots of different mm -hmm. modalities. Right, 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 of course. And so part of being strategic in kind of a broader sense is that you have to work in a way that that, therapy, that, that client fits for them, mm -hmm. you know? Sure. So am I, I'm probably always strategic in a sense, but do I have people that I, most of what I do is more kind of process oriented. They come in, we talk about what's going on, blah, blah, blah. Absolutely. Cause that's, that's what they're in need of. Mm -hmm. But within that, I believe I am also conscious of what we're working towards and intervening within that same structure. Got it. So offering metaphors in the form of stories that, that might not strike, they may not think of them in terms of, oh, he's doing an intervention right now. Mm-hmm. But I've picked that story for a reason because it's helping move them in the direction that they've chosen. You know, I still always am asking people what they want. And mm -hmm. and frequently, you know, so I've heard some people lately kind of trying to beat up on the idea of the well-formed outcome. Um, 
Uh, no, it's not about outcomes. It's about directions and things like that. And, and those ideas have merit, but sometimes just developing a well-formed outcome with a client is a really substantial intervention. Yeah, because they don't really know what they want. Right. And and because and they're looking at it in terms of what they don't want. Yes. So switching that, getting down to the evidence for, for how would you know all those pieces of it. So just, just again, for the sake of our listeners who don't know what it is that you're talking about, um, okay. a well-formed outcome, there are four basic steps to little check boxes to say is your, is your goal, is your outcome, mm-hmm. um, fitting these conditions to make it quote unquote well-formed or the well-formedness, well-formedness. Like a well-formed sentence because they were linguists. They were linguists. So can you, Tell us what you're looking for for a well-formed outcome. Um, stated in the positive, we know that one. Stated in the positive is a big so one. I do want this instead of I don't want that, and I'm aiming for this target. At least the first step, you want to have something they can initiate and maintain themselves. So self-initiated, maintained, yeah. So that you're not, so their goal isn't getting their husband to stop drinking. Right. It's getting to it's, something it's, I can do about right. Something that's within your capacity um sensory based that one to be honest i don't necessarily have to get down to what would you be seeing at the time but the idea that you're you're drilling down to something pretty specific is important yeah yeah so it doesn't have to necessarily be oh, this is what i'll be smelling you know all the, all my senses are involved but there's okay. evidence for how will i know that i've achieved this outcome you right. know how will i know i've gotten there exactly yeah. Um, then a, a big one is around ecology, really, I think is the most important one. Okay, good. So tell us what you mean by ecology and why you think it is the most important of these well-formedness conditions. Well, ecology and, and some people have, Steve Andreas in particular, I can't remember who suggested it to him, but used to talk about it was really a congruence check, not an ecology check, which makes sense as far as when you say to somebody, is there any part of you that objects to this? Mm -hmm. Right. So the idea is that you, when you're developing the goal, one of the most important pieces is determining two things. One, does it fit into their ecology or their whole life? And two, are, is there any internal part of them that objects to this goal? So that second part, I would say, yeah, that's pretty much a congruence check. You're just seeing is somebody, any part of them incongruent with the, the goal. But I think the overall ecology check also makes sense. And that's not, is there any part of you that has a problem with this? That's a series. That's where you question the person. And it's more, it's a little more like traditional therapy. Like, well, if, if this happened, if you got your outcome, how would that affect your marriage? How would that affect your kids? You know, just looking at a broader scope, would that be a problem at your work? Right. You know, how, so you're looking for any potential negative consequences. Right. So the way uh, Tony Robbins taught it when I was learning NLP from him back in the 80s was he said ecology means the study 
of consequences. What are the consequences? So in 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 ecological terms, um, you know, environmental terms, for doing an ecology check of I'm going to build this new shopping center in this marshland, what's the environmental consequence of doing that? So an ecology check there would be environmental based. But for us, the ecology of consequences could be, you know, not having to do with the environment or pollution or something. But yeah, if I make this change, you know, let's say quit smoking or something. Mm-hmm. What what's How is that going to affect my relationship with my wife, who's a smoker? How is it going to affect my relationship with my boss, who's a smoker? How is it going to, you know, blah, blah, blah. There, there could be consequences to this change. And we want to find out what those are so that we can, you know, inoculate against any problems that might come up. Yeah. I, or find I, a better solution. Right. And I would agree that that is all true. I don't know that that is complete because I think there's other pieces that are less consequence based. But for for the sake of argument, I think that's a helpful way to look at it. The other um, the other piece with that, I think NLP really I think it was informed by Erickson, but made very explicit in NLP with the ecology check is that the parts of you or other things that you find that that are in the way of your goal, so to speak, mm-hmm. are not problems or opportunities. Mm-hmm. That that those for that you need that the parts of you that may object, if we just look at the parts piece of it for now. If there's a part of you that's objecting, that's mm-hmm. awesome. That's where the goal is. Hmm. Because what keeps most people from getting to their outcomes is that they don't address those pieces. Yeah. Because we have a very American view of the world where the answer is usually surgery, right? <laughs> we could just remove that part, you'd be fine. <laughs> oh, God. I'm laughing because like three days ago, I was having this discussion with someone who shall remain nameless. Um, but I was I was telling him, I was like, oh, yeah, I've got this this hip issue. My hips are really bothering me. He goes, how old are you? I said, I'm, I'm 65. I said, oh, yeah, are you going to have surgery? It's like, <laughs> no. <laughs> no, I'm not going to have surgery. I'm going to get a massage or, you know, stretch a bit more. Good God. But, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so that's, that's our answer, just – you know, shoot it, cut it out, take a pill, annex it, something. Yeah. So the, (laughs) you know, it's like, I don't want to feel like this anymore. Okay. But you use the outcome from it. go, how do you want to feel instead? Uh So, you know, the, the, so the, I'll say to people, okay. Say I know somebody lives uh, half an hour from my office. Okay. And so I say to him, well, you know, what if I, you came in and I said, oh, by the way, how long did it take you to get here? And you go, oh, I took a shortcut through such and such. It only took me an hour and a half. And I was like, wow. And then I tell him the route that would only take him 30 minutes. How long do you think it would take you to take the short route? And they'll go, oh, right away. I go, except... You know, when you cut through such and such, that's got your favorite ice cream parlor. In it. <laughs> and it's the ice cream parlor that we're looking for. Because once you can figure out what that objection is, then you can start 
welcoming that part and understanding what it's doing for you. Yeah. And as long as you can do that effectively and rearrange the outcome in such a way that that's no longer an issue, then you'll be able to get to where you're going. And that's, that's the real work in therapy that, you know, I, I like cognitive behavioral therapy. I use a lot of techniques from that, but I think the piece that they missed was this. They did not get the idea that objections and resistance were a good thing. That's that's great. That's really great. So once you understand that, then I say, you know, I think that's why a lot of schools of therapy go, oh, change is hard. Change takes time. Change To me, change work is like Chinese cooking. It's all in the prep work. Hmm. If you take enough time to get everything lined up and you do all your chopping and prepping and everything's ready to go, time in the walk is like that. You just boom, 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 you're done. But it's it's doing the outcome frame, really making sure there isn't any resistance, all that stuff. That takes a while. Sometimes that takes sessions. But then once everything there, it's like tipping the first domino. It's no big deal to make the change. That's a great metaphor. So are there any uh, well-formedness conditions we left out? I know sometimes uh, contextualization. What's that mean? When, where, with whom do you want this goal? Which is a really important one because the next thing is I'm depressed. Okay, what do you want? I want to be happy. When do you want to be happy? All the time. So (laughs) how happy do you want to be at your mother's funeral? Yeah, exactly. You know? Right. So you gotta you gotta break it down a little bit. And and you know, a lot of what brings people into therapy is that they call they live in the land of generalizations, you know. That's why the the meta model, which basically takes things from general to specific. By the way, meta model, yes, thank you very much. Another NLP technique or part of NLP, yeah. Another essential coaching skills. By the way, just real quick, that's one of the reasons I started this in the first place. Essential coaching skills. I was using the meta model once with a client and and uh, and a coach call, and then I was talking with a friend of mine who's a coach. And I was talking about how important the meta model is, and he goes, "What's that?" And I'm going like, "You don't know the meta. How are you? How are you doing coaching? Right. How can you be a coach without knowing the meta model?" Well, and lots and lots of people are trained to a certain degree in NLP that could tell you what the meta model is, but I don't know how well they understand it or how well they use it because it's a cumbersome thing. I mean, it would be nice someday to to do something with it to make it less tongue twistery well i i have a solution yeah i can i can give you what john lavelle taught me as the universal meta model question this this meta model question can be applied in any context any 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 model any meta model violation this can be used for it goes like this you go uh what do you mean (laughs) yeah it works every time, every time. Yeah. Unspecified verbs, unspecified nouns, you know, you name it. Um, comparative deletions. Uh, what do you mean? And they go, well, I mean that this is better than that because, you know, and they'll, they'll, they'll fill in the blanks. They'll p- p- fill in the distortions and the dist- deletions and generalizations. Perfect. Yep. You're welcome. Nice. Yeah, write it down. Um, so, uh, what do you mean? There you go. So um, getting back then, I'm sorry, I digressed there for a moment. So uh... All right. 
So when when you start using things like an outcome frame or or the meta model, I mean, you're kind of doing both at the same time. People come in and their map of their current world, again, the idea from NLP, is that they're depressed all the time with every person in every situation. And and somebody's super, super depressed. There is certainly some truth in there, but there are still moments when they're not. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And one of the things that I do a lot with people because of my background, you know, I used to be a stand-up comic. So humor comes hopefully fairly easy to me. Um, so with depressed people, a lot of times in the beginning about my only goal is to get them to smile and possibly laugh a few times during the session. Hmm. Because that's breaking up their map. That That's, not very different from using the meta model. It's just doing it in a different way, right? That that if I may stop you there, I was actually that was that was on my list of questions to ask you, Bruce. Believe okay. it or not, um, because in the core competencies, going back to the Ericksonian core competencies, one of them is um, I think it's number four, number five um, is to is destabilization, which doesn't sound like a good thing, but um, when you think about what it means, it's to basically interrupt the pattern and destabilize the old pattern so it doesn't work so well. And injecting humor into a person's, you know, old pattern is is a age-old practice by some gifted therapists, you know, Dave Dobson, Richard Bandler, Tony, I mean, it's like gifted therapists, um, Frank Fairley. Oh, yeah, even the ones that, that are not NLP-related. Carl Rogers, Fritz, yeah, yeah. well, Fritz was. Every... Well, to be fair, Fritz wasn't NLP related in his model of the world. No, 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 they, no. I they, mean, they modeled that, him. that NLP people might be familiar with. Yeah, right, right, right. Or their coaches might be familiar with. But, but it's fascinating to me that when you look at tapes of, you know, famous therapists, almost all of them use humor. And I was reading a, about a study once that I found fascinating. Because, and I think this is part of why that works. There's a destabilizing thing. I totally agree with that. But one time they were doing um, a split brain study. And so what they would do is they had these special glasses on people so that their left eye would see horizontal stripes and the right eye would see vertical. And I'm, I'll give you the essence of the study. I, I'm, it could have been reversed or whatever. But, so one eye was horizontal, one eye was vertical. And they would have people put it on, and they had a series of questions to find out which, which side of their brain is dominant, blah, 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 blah. Right? So what was interesting was somebody came in at the beginning, in between putting somebody in the equipment and asking the questions, and this person told a joke or made them all give them a real hearty laugh. And then when they asked the subject, which, which, you know, which way are they going? The person said, Oh, they're making X's. They're, they're horizontal and vertical. Huh. Wow. So they, that led to a course of study that found that humor 
lateralized your brain function. Wow, that is that is fascinating. Whoa, really? Yeah. Huh. So if you just think of it in, in you know, kind of this is commonsensical, not neurology, but you know, we talk about adding resources. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, when sure. you get somebody to laugh, you double their resources in effect. Absolutely. Right? Absolutely. Yes, for sure. Oh my God, that's great. I love that. I love that study. Um, so you, as a, you know, once upon a time stand-up comic, um, strategically employ this skill that you developed of, of humor. In, in, both, both to destabilize, you know, break up old patterns of thought, and also to access states. Do you, would you say that you use it with every client? Seems like it probably can't be every client, but yeah, I probably surely a pretty. I mean, I, I can think of a, a session I did uh, two weeks ago with a woman that uh, had a friend in town that was really concerned with her. She had had a loss recently, and she was had not been eating and wasn't well. And so this friend called me and I was like, oh yeah, I can squeeze her in. So I came in. So this woman was in a really bad way and I was still joking around and got her to laugh a couple of times because that's that's kind of the first little bit that I get going with somebody. Nice. And it's a rapport building skill. Yeah. Does it? Do you have to be careful with it so that you don't uh, say the wrong joke to the wrong person? Yes, and you also have to be willing to apologize. <laughs> <laughs> okay, good. So then, Bruce, the idea of this um, being strategic in therapy, you know, one of the things I think that has been a challenge through my career, certainly, uh, but I think overall in the NLP slash hypnosis world is that people like expect these super rapid fixes. You know, you come in for a phobia and it's like, okay, we'll sit down. We'll get you right out of here. You know, five minutes later, boom, boom, you're done. Thank you very much. You know, you've cured the phobia. There's no problem anymore. And um, it doesn't sound like you work that way. It sounds like you, how you're, you're seeing clients, for well, it depends, depends on the, the case. I define brief therapy not in a number of sessions, but in a intent to do it as briefly as possible. Okay. So if, you know, I, I think the that whole push to be fast, quick, everything, you know, we're not... That was how I talk about contextualized, you know, back in the 60s, coming into the 70s, therapy was three days a week for 10 years. Mm-hmm. You know, it was a totally different thing than what we've got now. Yeah, that's true. And, and so everything that happens now, in a sense, is brief therapy. Um, I mean, there's exceptions to that, but overall, and some things are just complicated so while I don't I have people that I rarely see somebody once because part of my process is to do a full 
biopsychosocial assessment in the first session. And I have tried different ways of operating because I actually tell people, I say in the end, about 20% of what we're going to cover is going to be useful, but I don't know which 20%. So I have to get the whole thing. Mm-hmm. So my first session is that assessment session. By the end of that, I've got a pretty good idea of where I think we're heading. And, you know, we kind of talk about what, what we're going to do. And then it's not uncommon for me to only have to see somebody once or twice after that. Um, but it depends on the nature of the case. Got it. Fascinating. Now, I met you a long time ago, but we also got to know each other more uh, fully when you were involved with the research and recognition project mm-hmm. using um, NLP processes mm-hmm. for veterans with PTSD and, and uh, particularly acute symptoms of flashbacks and nightmares and you know disturbed sleeping, that sort of thing. Um, and for that process, there was a very particular format of therapy, if you will, that we offered. Protocol. To these, yeah, it's a therapeutic protocol that we offered to these uh, volunteers from the armed forces who, who were in, in the situation. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that and, and how um, now that was a, obviously a very strictly formulated right. protocol. There were three sessions done each the same way, so we could really basically study how the therapy protocol worked for these people. How do you approach that sort of thing now with clients that say somebody like that came into your office now? Would you do it the same way that we did it then? Would you do the... Sure. I have a little more flexibility because it's not research. But the, you know, what the people may know from NLP is the phobia cure or the movie theater technique or the rewind technique. Uh, Two guys, Frank Burke and Rick Gray, kind of renamed it the um, Reconsolidation of Traumatic Memories Technique, RTM, and added some pieces to it and developed this whole protocol. And overall, I use, I don't know how how different somebody would think it was if they compared it to the research when I do it. And for some people, it's very much like the, the research because I have... Uh, psychologists and social workers that refer people to me as an adjunct to just work on trauma. And so they'll send me somebody, I'll see them for two, three, four sessions, however many is appropriate. And then I send them back and they do the reintegration and, and other more standard therapeutic stuff. But I've used the RTM to help the person with the what I call the active symptoms of PTSD, like you said, flashbacks, intrusive memories, nightmares. So in that way, that's almost like doing the study, right? Yeah. Um, or if it's my client, there's, there's always more work than just the RTM because if it depends on with the veterans, that was a pretty specific population where, they, that trauma occurred late in life, right? They'd already had fairly well-formed personalities. You know, they're 18 or whatever when they go in. That, although a lot of them had earlier trauma too, but 
they were pretty well adjusted up until they got into the service. Now you take somebody that had way more traumatic experiences and they were from ages three to eight, that's not going to just affect them like a phobia. Mm -hmm. That's going to be integrated with their personality and also sorts of other pieces. So you're going to have a lot more to do there. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And even there's a great, uh, I think it's releasing PTSD.com is Steve Andreas's uh, videos of him working with a veteran through her trauma, but he does a myriad of NLP processes with her to help lots of different pieces. Right. So, you know, Steve used to call it the phobic core of PTSD. Huh. Interesting. And then there's other pieces to trauma. Tell me, tell me that URL again, or the. I believe it is releasing. Do the best you can. I'll look it up. Releasingptsd.com. He has he has two different streaming products, and one of them is him doing treatment without any specific um, instructions. Right? It's just you're watching Steve do several sessions with this woman. And that one is Steve Andreas. Oh, no, I'm sorry. That's releasingptsd.com. The other one is Steve Andreas PTSDtraining.com. All one long cumbersome word. And that one is like about 10 different NLP techniques that are relating them to trauma. But there's a lot of different processes in there. Okay. And they're, they're really excellent. Yeah, Steve Andres, again, for those of you who don't know, is one of the, uh, I don't know, I, I, I think of him as one of the main uh, movers and shakers of the NLP world throughout, throughout the years. Um, yeah. Really, without him, we might not have NLP as we know it. Certainly not as we know it. We might no. not have it at all. He, he and his wife, Connie Ray, Steve was the... They both got involved. They were together and got involved at the same time early on. Early on. But Steve was already well-respected in the Gestalt community as a therapist, and his mother was a well-known Gestalt therapist. So he was kind of like the first legit therapist person. Therapist, yeah, to, to kind of take on NLP. And then they went a long way to develop their own methods and, and stuff. But they also, correct me if I'm wrong, but did not they did they not also transcribe and publish many of the early books from, you know, Ben and Parson, the Prince, Prince's, that whole series of books, everything after uh, Structure Magic. Right. And he and Connie Ray edited them, published a lot of them. Yeah. And, uh, right. So again, we might not know of NLP at all, if it weren't for them, and certainly not. No, oh, I don't. So, um, so Steve Andres is a gold mine. Unfortunately, he's passed away just a year or so ago, two, maybe three, at this point. Um, last year is kind of a blur for me at this point. So it might have oh, been three years ago. Um, at any rate, you also, Bruce Teal, have a lovely TED talk. Oh yeah, about about yeah. this same sort of subject. About, yeah, it's, about it's very quick. It's like ten minutes. It talks about. Uh, the study that you and I were involved in, the results we got, and a little bit about the what I call the movie theater technique instead of RTM, but it's all the same stuff. And if you just Google my name, and Teal is T-E-A-L-L, like the color of two L's, and PTSD, it'll come up. 
Okay. So Bruce Teal and, and PTSD and PTSD and, and, and that usually brings it up for people. Okay, cool. It's it's definitely worth watching, and I love the illustrations you did with the like the color pictures of the pizza, and then the black and white pictures of the pizza. Yeah. And so you can see how NLP is talking about. It. You change the pictures, you change the response you get from it inside your mind. Um, Bruce, I know that you've got a time constraint here, so I want to be respectful of your time. Thank you so much for being here with us again. Oh. It's always a pleasure. Um, I don't find you funny though at all. Um, I'm surprised to hear that you have a similar thought right now. (laughs) (laughs) Um, It's funny. If you have just one, one second. Yeah, I'm good. Quick little anecdote. I was, I was watching on on the YouTube, whatever it was. Um, YouTube. How old are you again? (laughs) (laughs) You've just gotten back from Walmart's? The Walmarts. Um, yeah. Uh, I was watching Steve Martin and Mar- Marty Short. I think it's a network Netflix special or something like that. But at any rate, um, Steve Martin plays the banjo and he was playing in this in, in this special. He's playing with his uh, for some solos of songs that he'd written and then a band joins him on stage and then he, he comes out and he goes and he starts talking to the audience. He said, you know, um, ever since I started playing the instrument, I've mostly played on my own. I've played for years just by myself. It's unusual. For, it's new for me to play with a band, you know, like this. It's it's different. It's wonderful. But I thought since I I was doing it now, I'd, I'd go check out some other musicians, see how they do it. So I went to see uh, Eric Clapton play with his band, and I'm watching him play up there and going like, wow, I don't think he's that funny. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, so yes, on that note, thank you for your time. And hopefully we'll have you back here on here again, because I think it's really important. The Research and Recognition Project, I was excited about it because I thought, okay, here we're going to get the research that gives NLP the recognition that it is a viable approach to a therapeutic applications. Um, And it really does when people watch your TED talk, the evidence is obvious. How much, yeah, overwhelming. How much better the results were that we got, you got from this research and recognition project with those veterans than they ever got from the traditional therapies that they were given okay. via the the. Well, and, and it's a it takes us full circle to bring us back to that. The whole idea was to get the evidence-based practice, uh-huh. which would be great. But at the same time, I'm always mixed because that's not what we're really shooting for here. But I do think it is, it is good. And they're, and they can, I, I'm not working with them anymore, but they continue to move forward and they're doing more trainings and I think publishing some more articles. So good. Good. Well, stay warm up there in Rochester. I know the, uh, Weather's turning. Oh yeah, here as we record this, late October two thousand twenty-one. That's right. Yep. So All good. right, sir. Well, thanks for having me. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks, sir. We'll see you again. All right. Well, that's our show for today. Thank you so much for joining me. 
If you want any more information about today's show, please visit our website at www.essentialcoachingskills.com. Be sure to tune in again next week for our next episode and discover even more about the systems and the secrets that set the best apart.